If you feel a curious mixture of pride over what our kids have accomplished and shame over how difficult it has been for you and me, would you say amen? Amen, amen. Well, a few introductions are in order here. I should probably take a moment to reintroduce myself. My name is JD and I'm one of the pastors here uh, at the Summit Church. Uh, if you have been here more than twice this summer, however, you have been here more often than I have. Uh, I got stopped on the way in this weekend and somebody said, you should probably go by the first time guest tent because we're pretty sure your membership has expired. Uh, but I've spent the last uh, month or so traveling in Southeast Asia with my family, spending a lot of time with our missionaries over there uh, in that part of the world. Um, I did listen to several of the messages that were preached here uh, in my absence, and I just want to take a minute to commend both our teaching team and our campus pastors. You did such an outstanding job in my absence. I know uh, that you agree with that as well. Well, I spent um, a few weeks with several of our, our church's missionaries over in Southeast Asia. We currently have 257 of our church members that live as missionaries on one of our church planting teams um, somewhere you know, outside of the United States. And I got to spend time with 51 of them. You know, one of our values here at the Summit Church that we always talk about is we want to send every member. In some way, every member should be sent. It's why we end every service with the phrase, you are sent. Uh, we say that, uh, you know, the Great Commission is not a, a suggestion given to some. It is a mandate given to all. And the question is no longer if you are sent. The question is where that you are sent. It's the Great Commission, not a good suggestion. And a hundred other ways that we try to communicate this. We always tell people, you put your yes on the table and let God put it on the map. Well, I was with a group of families who have sat at some point at one of our campuses. And many of them came to faith in Christ here. And they did just that. And uh, uh, the place that God put their yes on the map was in South or Southeast Asia. Uh, a lot of things I could share from that time, and I'm sure they'll leak out over the next several weeks. Um, but uh, just a couple big takeaways I wanted to share with you before we even got started uh, this weekend. Takeaway number one is our strategy of sending ordinary people, ordinary people to take their job and to go do it somewhere strategic for the mission of God, that strategy works. One of the things we say, God made you good at something, all right? Whatever you're good at, do it well for the glory of God, but why not also do it somewhere strategic for the mission of God? God didn't make you necessarily all good at preaching, but he made you good at something. So why not just do that thing that you're good at, do it somewhere strategically as a part of one of these, of one of these mission teams. That's what I got to see. Ordinary people with ordinary jobs that are just living strategically in a place where Christ is not named, allowing um, this community that they've become a part of to share Christ with people in some of the least reached parts of the world. That's the first big takeaway. The second takeaway uh, is almost sounds like it's in tension with that one, but that is that some of you, some of you are going to have to consider walking away from your career to be on one of these teams, not leveraging your career, but walking away from your career. I got to spend time with some extraordinary people who realized that what God was calling them to do was to lay everything aside and just say, I'm going to devote myself to church planting and to be a part of these things over there and feeling like, I mean, God calls us all to different things, but knowing that their lives were counting, uh, maybe not the way they thought they was going to um, here, but uh, counting for eternity. Um, and we believe that God is already moving in a number of you that way. And over the next uh, several months, you'll hear continually places that we feel like God is calling us to plant churches. And I just can't help but think some of you are already being stirred. I'm obviously not the Holy Spirit and I can't tell you what God wants you to do, but I want to challenge you again to put your yes on the table and let 
let God decide where he's going to put it on the map. Amen? Amen. All right, Romans chapter 8, if you got your Bible and you remember where Romans chapter 8 is, we haven't been there since the beginning of the summer, so I hope you can find your way back to it. Romans chapter 8, or if you brought your Romans journal, if you got this uh, jewel of a book here, we'll be back in that. Romans 8 is found on page 52, I believe, so you can open it there and take notes there. Romans 8, you remember, is regarded by many to be the greatest chapter in the Bible. Well, this weekend, I want to talk about one of the most famous verses in that chapter, arguably one of the most famous verses in the whole Bible, and that is Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Some of you have a t-shirt with some phrase from that verse, be dazzled on that t-shirt, or you got a coffee mug with some part of that, or you've got it crocheted um, on a pillow somewhere in your house, in your bed, or hanging up on your wall. Uh, We love to quote that verse to each other when bad things happen. Hey, don't worry. Don't worry. It's all going to be fine because, you know, all things are working together for good for the ones who love God. But here's the thing. If you are honest, And I feel like my job here at the church is partially to make you honest about things that you don't want to verbalize in church. So I'll just verbalize it for you. If you are honest, sometimes that verse feels hollow. Sometimes that verse even feels frustrating to hear because, sure, while sometimes you can see good things that God is bringing out of your bad things, sometimes you can't see any good thing that could possibly come out of this bad thing. See if you can relate to this. Brad Hambrick, who is our director of counseling here at the Summit Church, tells a story about a girl that he calls Natasha. He says, while the names and a few of the details of this particular story are fictional, he said this story corresponds to dozens of similar stories that he has heard in his counseling office over the years. Let me give you a warning. This is, this is kind of heavy, but, but I, I, I want you, to, I want you to, to press in on this. Uh, Natasha. Natasha and her husband had longed for a child, and they finally conceived after five years of trying. They learned that their child was a girl, and so they decided to name her after Natasha's mother, who had died when Natasha was just an infant. Throughout the pregnancy, they, they read every book on what to expect. They prepared a dream nursery with, you know, complete with, with, with this, this uh, baby girl's initials on the, on, on the wall, embroidered on the, on the, on the, on the, the blankets and, and painted on the wall. Everything was set. But tragically, their daughter was born stillborn, suffocated by the umbilical cord. The only memory, visual memory that they have of her is of her blue, lifeless body and the sense of guilt that they had that somehow they had failed to, to help her when she needed. Not knowing how to deal with the pain, which many times couples in a situation like this don't, their marriage deteriorated. They started to take it out on each other and they started to lash out at each other and the volatility tore them apart. Natasha's husband, in a, in, in, in a pursuit to find some kind of escape, he begins to have an affair at work. He finds life, he says, in conversations with a coworker and convinces himself that he really is in love with this other woman. When Natasha finds a couple of questionable emails on his, on his computer, he lashes out at her and he blames her. He leaves and promptly files for divorce. Within a year, he is remarried and has a child, a little girl. Natasha's dream is, is dream life is being lived out now by another woman. Because Natasha was not really a fighter, she, she lost big in the divorce settlement and she has to get a second job as a waitress just to make ends meet. As she's driving home late one night from that second job, she, she falls asleep at the wheel and she has a wreck. She totals her car, which she cannot afford. 
in the, in, in the process, she also crushes two vertebrae in her lower back. That requires surgery, more money she does not have. For the rest of her life, she's going to experience limited mobility, chronic pain, and she's going to be labeled disabled. People at her church and her small group try to comfort her with verses like Romans 8.1. Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And while she can give mental and theological assent to that verse, while she can nod her head, it doesn't change her feelings. She feels abandoned by God. She feels rejected. She feels like she's cursed. But she says, even more, that is, even that verse is more bearable to me than Romans 8.28 that we know that all things work together for good of those who love God. When friends try to comfort her with that verse, she knows they just don't understand. Sometimes she even gets angry when they're quoting it. What possible good? What possible good could God be bringing out of this? What silver lining is there in this dark cloud? How could any of this work out for good? Here's a question. Have you ever dealt with somebody in that kind of situation? Or maybe if you've gone through this yourself, maybe you're right in the middle of it this morning. You know, suffering is the number one reason why people stop believing in Christianity, why people stop having faith in God or following Jesus. I, I saw that recently um, uh, this week. It was a, a new show where there's a show on Netflix that some of you have seen, Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. Jerry Seinfeld hosts it. And the, one of the, the episodes for this season is uh, Ricky Gervais, the creator of The Office, who is a very famous atheist. And what he says, uh, Jerry asked him about that in the, in the show. And, and, and Ricky Gervais says, yeah, people often ask me if I pray. He said, I, I stopped praying because why would I ask God to help me find my keys if he stood by and did nothing during the Holocaust? It's people, they look at it and they say, I just don't see purposeless suffering. I don't see any possible good coming out of these kinds of things. So I just can't believe that there's a God who is there. Maybe you're not quite there, but maybe inwardly you struggle to feel close to a God whose ways you just cannot understand. So I want to talk to you about what Romans 8.28 actually means. Now I want to give you a handful of myths, three in particular, that Christians believe about suffering that Romans chapter 8 addresses. We're going to look not just at Romans 8.28, but the context of Romans 8.28, which is verses 18 through 30, which of course our kids quoted to us a moment ago. Here's myth number one that Christians believe about suffering. Myth number one, if we live well, we can avoid suffering. Many Christians believe that if they live like they're supposed to live, they can avoid or at least minimize suffering. But I want you to notice that Paul in this passage assumes that suffering is part of the believer's life. Verse 18, he says, this present time has sufferings. Verse 23, we groan under those sufferings. Verse 21, all of creation of which we are a part it's subject to futility. It is in bondage to corruption. There is nothing in this passage that assumes that if you are God's child, you can avoid these realities. In fact, it says quite the opposite. Jesus, in fact, told his disciples, in this world, you are going to have tribulation. And if anything, it's going to be worse for you than, than those who aren't God's children because, because you also have Satan that is gunning for you. There's nothing that indicates that if you live like you're supposed to live, that you will avoid tribulation. By the way, a related assumption um, to this one that many in our culture believe is that life by itself, it just inevitably turns out positive, that the universe is somehow wired to turn out for good. It's structured so that every dark cloud will eventually have a silver lining. I call it the little orphan Annie philosophy. The sun will come out tomorrow. I know that tomorrow is going to be better than today, and today's troubles are just very temporary. But I want you to notice that this passage actually indicates the opposite. 
creation, Paul says, is in bondage to futility. It can't escape it. This is where it's all headed, futility and corruption. In fact, it's only, Paul says, through God's special intervention on behalf of believers that anything turns out for good. By the way, your, your CSB translation, or at least that's what I'm preaching from, actually doesn't serve us well here in the way they translated this verse. Because it, the way they write it is, all things work together for the good of those who, who love God. And it makes it sound as if maybe, maybe somehow just, you know, creation is wired so that it just naturally turns out great. Uh, somehow naturally things are going to work out for good. So don't worry, be happy, hakuna matata, whatever, you know, it's, everything's going to be fine. But the actual, the way it's written in Greek indicates that God is the one who is making this happen. God is the one who is working all things out together for good. The, word, the universe, creation is going the opposite direction. It's only through a special act of grace toward believers that God redeems bad circumstances for good. By the way, a good illustration you might um, think about this summer if you're at the beach uh, on a beach trip, when you're walking through the sand, that sand you feel between your toes. They tell us that every grain of that sand at one point was part of some mountain, some rock formation. But that great mountain eventually dissolved into, into grains of sand. That's where everything is headed. It's all in bondage to corruption, and it's all, all the, even the greatest things are going to ultimately dissolve. That's myth number one, is that if we live right, we can avoid suffering. Myth number two is that suffering always points to some sin that we need to confess. The idea here is that in suffering, God's always trying to get your attention in order to correct some error in you, to expose some sin that you need to, be, you need to confess. And let me be really clear, okay? Sometimes that's true. Affliction is one of God's choice tools to wake us up. So the author of Psalm 119 says, before I was afflicted, I went astray. God put Jonah in the belly of a well in order to get his attention. Sometimes he does that, metaphorically speaking to us. Sometimes we say, God puts us flat on our back, so finally we'll be looking the right direction. Maybe that's happening to you this morning. But the point is, that's not always the case. The suffering Paul talks about here in Romans 8, there is no indication that it is in response to anything wrong. Paul didn't say, well, this is happening because this over here is happening. In fact, in the book of the Bible that deals most with suffering, the book of Job, God makes clear that Job was not suffering because of his sin. In fact, God says Job was the right, most righteous man alive on earth at the time. And of course, we know that Jesus was the most righteous person ever to live, and he suffered more than any of us. Not all suffering is trying to correct something in you. And by the way, if it is, because you have a heavenly father, I feel pretty safe in saying he'll let you know what he's trying to correct pretty quickly. Isn't that what a good father does? I mean, good father, if, if I discipline my children, I let them know very quickly what is connected to what. I don't, I didn't, when they were kids, I didn't just walk in the room and spank them. Daddy, why? Oh, you figure it out. I'm just generally displeased with you and you just need to figure out what this is for. No. If I was going to discipline them in some way, they knew exactly this is happening because of this. I can pretty confidently tell you that if the heavenly father sends suffering into your life to, to, to get your attention or to wake you up, you will very quickly know what it is. And if you don't know what it is, that's a really good chance that that suffering is not like Jonah's wake up call. It's more like Job's mysterious suffering, the kind of suffering being talked about here in Romans 8. Myth number two, that's myth number, th or that's myth number two. Here's myth number three. We will always be able, this is the big one, we'll always be able to find the silver linings behind our dark clouds. This is where everybody uses Romans 8, 28 the wrong way. They say, well, you know, the Bible says all things work together for good. So where's the silver lining behind this dark cloud? Where, what's the good? 
And of course, listen, sometimes you can see it, right? The car accident wakes up an alcoholic to the severity of his addiction. A painful breakup you go through actually frees you from a a bad or a lesser relationship to, to open you up to the right one. In fact, we know here at the Summit Church, it's very personal to us because our church was planted in 1962 by a guy who actually was headed to the mission field, but found out his son had a heart defect. So he had to move here to Durham so that he could have his son at Duke Hospital for the, about the space of a year. And during the course of that year, he planted Homestead Heights Baptist Church, which became the Summit Church. So it's easy for you and I to be like, see, see, it looked like un- it was unfortunate, but God was using that for good. Sometimes we discover how a painful or confusing chapter of our lives prepares us for some challenge later on. Remember Pastor Brian LaRitz, who preached here a couple weeks ago? He, he told an illustration about this that we all, at least if you're over 40 years old, you relate to. He told the you know, Karate Kid, one of the great movies from the 1980s when movies were at their apex, okay? Um, uh, Karate Kid, Daniel, uh, in case you, you know, are younger than 20, um, Daniel is this kid who keeps getting beat up. So he goes to Mr. Miyagi, so Mr. Miyagi can teach him karate, but Mr. Miyagi has to do it quickly because Daniel has just entered a karate tournament that's three weeks from now and he doesn't know any karate. So Mr. Miyagi has three weeks to teach him to be a black belt, which is a little unrealistic in its premise, but you know, whatever. All right, so he shows up to get, you know, learn the karate lessons, but instead of learning karate moves, he's given household chores to do, wax on, wax off. And he does that for a day. And then he goes back the next day and he's got to paint the fence. And then he's got to sand the floor. And at one point in the movie, he just loses his mind. He starts yelling at Mr. Miyagi like, you're wasting my time. I don't know what we're doing. I'm just out here being your handyman. And that famous scene, Mr. Miyagi says, okay, you know, show me a wax on, wax off. And, 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 and now Daniel's learned these great blocking skills. And now he's learned all this great stuff. And he realizes that all this stuff that seemed like it was, was crazy and chaotic was actually being used to, to form in Daniel the, the things he would need to win at the karate tournament. And Brian Loretz correctly explains that many of us have points in our lives where we see that, right? You see how some chapter you went through, some pain, some boredom. Man, that was, God was using that to put in you a skill that you would need for something he had for you later on. You had your Mr. Miyagi moment. You're like, I get it now. God did that in me so I could do this. But here's the thing. You can't always see that, right? I mean, because you look back at Natasha couldn't see that. You, you look back and you say, well, I don't see, well, where's my wax on, wax off moment? Well, where's my, well, how is this producing in me that kind of character? Well, in this chapter, Paul indicates that, watch this, much of the good that God brings out of our sufferings is going to be manifested only in eternity. But look at verse 18. He points to a glory that is, see this, going to be revealed. Not even is being revealed, but going to be revealed. It's in eternity. It's not experience now, or at least all of it. Verse 25, Paul says that we have to wait for that glory. We eagerly wait for it with patience. Look at verse 24, even clearer. We are saved in hope, but hope that is seen. Well, that's not actually hope. If you can see it, it's not hope, it's sight. A lot of us say that we want to live by faith, but the moment we can't see or understand what God is doing, we throw up our hands and we say, God, are you even there? God, do you curse me? God, why wouldn't you do this? We say that we want to live by faith, but we also want to be able to understand why every bad thing happens in our life. We want to be able to say, oh, I get it now. I get it. That's why that happened. And it was producing this in me. But that's, y'all, that's not walking by faith. That's walking by sight. 
Faith means trusting God even when you cannot see him. Faith means, Paul says, waiting patiently until the end to experience resolution. Walking by faith means not declaring a verdict over your life until you experience the glory of eternity and realizing that sometimes you're not going to see the end and it's better just to keep your mouth shut and not, and not declare the verdict. And I can't help but think of one of my favorite little stories about the, I told you this, the bird who gets a late start flying south for the winter. And because he gets a late start, it turns colder than when you know, it's usual. And so his, his, his wings freeze. They form ice and freeze while he's up trying to fly south. And so he can't fly and he has a crash landing. And he thinks, this is terrible. I'm not going to be able to fly south for the winter and I can't fly. I'm going to die right here. Along by comes a cow and the cow walks right over top of him and drops manure on his head. And he thinks, well, this just went from bad to worse. Not only am I going to die here, I got to die smelling like manure. But the manure is warm and the manure thaws his wings and he realizes that he's going to be able to fly again. So he starts to flap his wings and chirp, chirp, chirp because he's so happy. Well, that gets the attention of a, of a cat nearby and the cat comes along and eats him. And this story teaches us three things about how God works in your life, okay? Number one, number one, not everybody who drops manure on you is your enemy. Number two, not everybody who digs you out is your friend. Number three, sometimes when you're in manure, it's helpful just to keep your little chirper shut and wait until the end of the story. Sometimes it's helpful when you're in the midst of these situations, when you don't know what God is doing to just keep your mouth shut and wait patiently for the end of the story, for resolution, for God to resolve it in eternity. Or you think of it this way. You ever notice how in the best movies, the best TV shows, the best books, they usually create tensions that don't resolve until much later. You ever notice this? In fact, since I've, I've praised 80s movies, let me um, dog on 80s shows. Remember the shows we used to watch in the 1980s, the series? They had one problem, well, at least we realize now, is that um, every show, like the A-Team, you know, Dukes of Hazzard, whatever, they all, they all resolved every episode. You'd have a problem, it'd resolve that episode. It was not like these long arcs. Now, the best shows, the kind that you binge watch, have some problem that gets introduced and it takes like eight seasons in order to be able to resolve that problem, right? I mean, you know what I'm saying? And that makes a much better show because, because when you, as, as that tension, it's, it's like there's, there's a lot of resolution coming, but you gotta wait for it. Well, what Paul would be saying is that our lives are gonna be like that. And some of us have wanted this quick resolution in every chapter and Paul says, you're not gonna get that. Some of these things are resolved only in eternity. There is a long arc of what God is doing and that is he is writing into us his beauty. So those are three myths that Christians tend to believe about suffering that bewilders them. So let's turn that around now and we'll say, okay, well, if those are the myths, what hope does God actually give me in suffering? What is Romans eight really promising to me? Let me give you four things, okay? First one, verse 28, God promises, letter A, he is promising that he is using all things, all things ultimately to make you more like Jesus. People always overlook the last part of verse 28, which might be the most important part of the verse. We know that all things run together for good for those who love God, who were called according to his purpose. What is that purpose? What is God's purpose in you? Well, verse 29, he tells you what it is. For those he foreknew, he also predestined, that means purposed, to be conformed to the image of his son. God's purpose that he is working for in all things in your life is to make you more like Jesus. The good, the good that he is working all things toward is not so much about giving you better circumstances as it is making you a better you. 
a you who is more like Jesus. Invariably, at every moment, God is working toward that end. That painful chapter in your marriage, that setback at work, that chronic illness, all of it was for this purpose. And there will come a time, there will come a time if you submit to God in faith, when you see that all the painful chapters, all the heartaches, all the tears, disabilities, all the disadvantages, all the disappointments, even those seasons of boredom and loneliness, all of them were used by God for one purpose. And that is to mold you more into the image of Jesus. What that means is that when you're in the midst of some kind of pain or boredom, instead of asking God to get you out of the trouble, you should also be asking God to what you should get out of the trouble. Now, there's nothing wrong with asking God to get you out of the trouble. That's natural. But you should also be saying, God, if the reason that I go through this is to make me more like Jesus, not only am I interested in getting out of this trouble, I want to know what you want me to get out of this trouble. Does that make sense? Somewhere, at some time, in some way in eternity, you're going to have a Mr. Miyagi moment. And you're going to realize that the wax on, wax off, sand the floor, paint the fence moments were teaching you to be more like Jesus. There's another story I've told over the years to illustrate this that um, I, my kids improved on it. So let me, basically, here's how it goes. Um, I, I've told you it's like a tapestry. Like if you go on the tour of Biltmore House, they have these beautiful tapestries. And uh, on the one side, it looks just perfect. Like every string is in the right place. And it makes this elaborate work of art. But I've told you, if you, the tour guide flips it over for you, you see that on the back, it's this chaotic jumbled mess. So it looks like all these strings are just going random places. And I've told you that that's what our lives feel like is this random chaotic mess. But one day God's going to flip it over and you're going to see that, that it was all being woven for the face of Jesus, Christ image in you and you know, that kind of thing. So we were, um, somebody gave me a gift recently. And my kids were looking at it. And one of my daughters said, dad, this is like that, this is like that story that you tell about the tapestry. Um, so it's like this. This right here represents all these like random things that are happening in your life, all these red streaks of pain and suffering. She said, one day, dad, one day God is going to, God is going to flip it over and it's gonna see that it was a, <laughs> it was a beautiful work of art. God was forming Nicolas Cage in you. She said, that's what that means. Now, I would say the Nicolas Cage part probably isn't accurate, but there is something happening in your life that just feels like it's scarring up. But one day, one day what, what, what Paul is saying is Christ is using all these things to form Christ in you. And one day he's gonna flip it over and he's gonna say Christ in you. And by the way, thank you to the one of you that got me this as a gift. So Merry Christmas and happy birthday. So, all right, so God is using all things to make you more like Jesus. That's his, his promise. Here's the second thing. Second promise is my story is going to end with the redemption of my body. My story is going to end with the redemption of my body. Paul says in verse 22 that all of creation, of which I'm a part, has been groaning together with labor pains until now. We also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. And the over 40 crowd said, amen. Right, right. And by the way, I'm right there with you. If you're in your 20s, you don't get this. It doesn't make sense. And we all hate you for it, just so you know. But you'll get it one day when you, and we look forward to that day. Um, but when you're, 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 you're 40 years old, you're just like, it, you're like groaning. That totally, I get that right now. Curtis, um, when he preached here last week, he showed a picture of me. I think he used the face app to make, yeah, there I am, uh, make it look older. And I was sitting in the audience and I was like, well, I don't, I don't look like that, but I feel like that half the time. Uh, you, you know what makes me tired now? This is so depressing. Preaching makes me tired. I mean, standing up here talking, I have to go home. Literally, I will go home out right after this and I will take a nap just standing up and talking. It didn't used to be that way. Uh, when I first became pastor here, I, no, I wouldn't get tired preaching. 
Jet lag. It is embarrassing how long it took me to get over jet lag um, this time, coming back over. And when I was younger, I used to just bounce right back and I'd be up and around in a few days. The reason I didn't preach last Sunday, even though I'd been back for a few days, is because there was a real good chance I might have fallen asleep while I was preaching. It's one thing for you to fall asleep. I, I see you, by the way. There's one thing for you to fall asleep back there, but, but for me to fall asleep, that's a whole different story right in the middle of a sermon, right? It's the body is groaning, waiting for redemption. But one day, this body, Paul says, it's going to be redeemed, not just back to the days of my youth, but it's going to be transformed into a body like Christ in his resurrection. And that's a body that's not going to ache or get sick or struggle with weight gain. In fact, I'm pretty confident, I haven't found this in the Bible yet, but I'm sure it's there, um, that in heaven, when you eat broccoli and cauliflower, cauliflower, you're gonna gain weight and ice cream and bacon make you lose weight. Um, That is what God has one day and I can't wait to get there, all right? So it's coming, redemption of the body is coming. And Paul says, you've gotta wait for that and you've gotta hope for it. Uh, Joni Erickson Tata, who is, um, she's uh, quite elderly now, uh, but she, when she was a teenager, she had a diving accident that left her as a quadriplegic. And she's written a lot, very helpfully about suffering. Uh, she has this, one of my favorite quotes about her. She says this, when I get to heaven, I'm going to push my wheelchair up to the throne of Jesus. Notice, I'll be walking. I'm going to thank him for every character refining work he did in me and through me because of this wheelchair. And then I'm going to ask Jesus to send this wheelchair straight to hell because it was only needed and relevant because of the wreckage that's left by sin. I know that one day this redemption of the body is coming and God's going to wipe away every tear and take away all the heartache and the relational disillusion and God is going to make all things new. Along with my body, all of creation itself is going to be redeemed. I don't even know exactly what all that means, to be honest, but it, at least it means that the best parts of nature and creation are going to be redeemed, transformed without the curse of sin. In fact, because I kind of dog so much on the other side, I'll I'll even throw this out there for you. Revelation and Isaiah both indicate that heaven's going to be full of animals, good animals where the, the poisonous or the predatory nature has been removed. The lion lays down with the lamb, Isaiah says. The child plays with the snake. I know when I say that, that makes some of you wonder about individual animals like your dog that died. Honestly, the Bible doesn't have a lot to say about that specifically. Your dog, of course, doesn't have a soul. But honestly, who knows? I would not put it past your heavenly father to reunite you with a beloved dog. You might see your dog again in heaven. Now, if you want to see your cat, you probably need to go the other direction. So I'm just going to say that, okay? So pay your money, make your choice. I don't understand. I don't understand everything there is to know about what's waiting on us. But I do know Paul says, verse 18, that what is waiting on us is so glorious that the painfulness of the worst pain here can't even compare to the glory of that gloriousness there. You you can't even comprehend it. Paul says in Corinthians, I has not seen nor his ear heard, nor has even entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. Which means if you could even imagine it, whatever you and I came up with in our imagination would not be sufficient. The Bible says, Daniel chapter 12, verse nine, that you and I will be glorified like the sun, S-U-N, which means you couldn't even look at it. Right now, you couldn't even look at it. It would be too harmful for your eyes. It'd be like, to describe it to you now, would be like giving a Rembrandt or a Monet to a kindergartner. You just don't have the receptors to comprehend it. And Paul says that in light of that glory experienced there, even the worst things we experience now Even the worst things are going to seem like just a light and momentary affliction. By the way, when Paul says that, he's not being glib about your pain. Paul knew pain. 
Paul knew relational breakdown. Paul knew he had chronic illness. Paul knew injustice. He knew what it was like to be slandered. He knew what it was like to be alone. He knew what it was like to be tortured. He knew what it was like to be martyred even when he was innocent. He's not trying to minimize your pain. He understood pain. He was just saying that compared to the glory that is going to be revealed, which is you becoming like Jesus and you being in God's, in God's eternity with him, in light of that, even the worst pain is going to seem light and, and momentary. I got a friend who was diagnosed with brain cancer. Hey, he's actually uh, alive, but they thought for a while that he, he wasn't going to make it past five years. And as he's wrestling with what this means for his young children, Somebody asked him one time, they said, you know, do you feel like when you get to heaven, you're going to be able to see like, oh, this happened, so this happened. He said, you know, honestly, based on what I read in the Bible, and when, I think when people get in, we get in heaven and they start talking about the pain, I'm going to say, what pain? What are you even talking? I can't even remember that. That's what Paul is saying in light of, of what is coming. There is a glory that is so overwhelming that we won't hardly even remember the pain. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So I'll gladly run the race till I see him. Here is your assurance, friends. Not one second of your suffering is wasted. Not one thing happens in your life that the goodness of our God will not transform into glory. And one day, one day you're gonna be able to look back over your life and you're gonna see it. The Christian group Shane and Shane have this song. Uh, it's called, Though You Slay Me. Written by one of the, the, the two Shane, Shane Bernard. It was written when his dad unexpectedly um, passed away as a pretty young man. In the middle of the song, um, they splice in part of a sermon from John Piper on, on Romans 8. And I love what John Piper says here. Not only, not only is all your affliction momentary, not only is it light in comparison to eternity and the glory there, but every second of it is totally meaningful. Every millisecond of your misery and the path of obedience is producing a peculiar glory that you're gonna get because of that suffering, through that suffering. I don't care if it was cancer or criticism, slander or sickness, it wasn't meaningless. It was doing something. Of course, you can't always see what it's doing. Don't look to what is seen. When your mom dies, when a child dies, when you've got cancer at 40, when a car careens into the sidewalk and takes her out, don't say that's meaningless. It's not meaningless. It's working for you an eternal weight of glory. Therefore, don't lose heart, but take these truths of Romans 8 and day by day focus on them. Preach them to yourself every morning. Get alone with God and preach his word into your mind, into your heart. Sings with confidence that you were known and that you were cared for. This is the hope that believers have. We're not done. Listen to this, third element of hope. In the meantime, in the meantime, the Spirit perfectly intercedes for me. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness because we don't even know what to pray for as we should. Ever been there? But the Spirit himself, in that moment, we don't know what to say. He intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit groans in us. You say, well, what does that mean exactly? Well, to be honest with you, I'm not totally sure. Uh, it's not a reference to the gift of tongues, by the way, because this is something the Spirit does for all believers, and tongues is a gift that, that God gives to, to certain believers. So this is a groaning that takes place in the heart of every believer. What I can tell you is that Paul uses that word groan to mirror what creation is doing and what you are doing in your pain. You groan, so the Spirit groans in you even more deeply than you're groaning in your pain. And that communicates at least two things. Number one, it communicates emotion. The spirit has united himself to you so that, watch this, he hurts when you hurt. 
what you feel he feels. He feels your pain with you. I think one of the most moving scenes in Jesus's life is where he shows up at the tomb of Lazarus, his friend who's died. Mary and Martha, his sisters are just beside themselves with grief. And we encounter the, the shortest verse in the entire Bible, John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. The verse never makes sense to me because Jesus knew what he was about to do. He knew he was about to resurrect him. Within 60 seconds, Lazarus, Lazarus would be coming out of the grave. So why would Jesus weep in that moment if he knows Lazarus is about to resurrect? Wouldn't you be like, hey, stop crying, watch this. But in that moment, even though Jesus knows the joy that's coming, in that moment he weeps because Mary and Martha are weeping. And what it's showing you is that your pain, even though from the perspective of eternity, it's rather light and momentary, that pain is real. And your heavenly father feels it with you. And in that moment where you hurt and you're feeling the sting of insult and injustice, when that moment where your body is in pain, he is weeping with you and he is groaning in you. By the way, there are some believers who feel like their pain doesn't matter because comparatively speaking, it's not that bad, right? Sometimes we even tell stories to each other to try to, like, try to make you feel better. Like, oh, well, you know, at least this is not happening. Somebody might've said that Natasha, whose story I told at the beginning, well, at least you're not a quadriplegic. You know, at least, uh, at least, uh, at least you're not being held hostage by a terrorist and somehow that's supposed to make her feel better. But as Pastor Brad says, suffering's not a competitive sport. Just because somebody else got hit by a truck doesn't mean your knee surgery hurts less. Just because somebody else has terminal cancer doesn't mean getting passed over for a promotion is any less insulting to you. We're not competing with Auschwitz for God's compassion. Your pain is real and Jesus feels it when you feel it. And the spirit, Paul says, groans in you even more deeply than you're groaning in your pain. So there's emotion. The second component there is wisdom. The spirit prays according to the will of God. He prays the will of God perfectly over you. You've been in that moment where you don't, sometimes I don't even know what to say. I don't know what you're trying to do here, God. I don't know why this is happening in the life of my child. I don't know why this is happening in my marriage. I don't know why this is happening in my body. I don't even know how to pray your kingdom come. And in that very moment, the spirit of God rises up and he begins to pray the will of God perfectly. He knows exactly what God is trying to do. That's a comfort for a believer in the midst of pain because there's a spirit that is feeling it and is praying it with you. My pastor growing up, you said this great statement. I heard him use it dozens of times. People will come up to him and say, pastor, would you pray for me? And he would say, yes, I will. And then he says, I will pray for you. But even more importantly, the spirit's going to pray for you. And when I stop praying, the spirit will continue. The comfort that you can have is the spirit of God. If you are a believer is praying in you and over you right now with groanings that cannot be uttered and wisdom you cannot comprehend. Last one, last one, letter D. What God started, Paul promises, he's going to finish. In verse 29, Paul brings up the P word, predestination. Those he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, why does Paul bring up predestination here? It's not to try to start a theological argument. He's not like, hey guys, I'm a Calvinist. Just wanna let you know, 1500 years before John Calvin comes, I'm a Calvinist. He's not saying that. The reason he brings it up, watch this, is to give you assurance. See what he says in the next verse? Those he predestined, well, those are the ones he called. How do you know that you're predestined? Well, you got called. The ones he called, those are the ones he justified. And the ones he justified, hey, he's gonna glorify. 
Which means that if your life shows evidence of being called, you can have the confidence that what God started, he's going to finish. And if God puts you on the calling train, he's gonna take you all the way to the glorification station. And the good news is, if you feel like you're barely holding on to him, you can be assured, Paul says, he's still holding on to you because God didn't choose you because of your righteousness. And if God didn't choose you because of your righteousness, he's not gonna drop you because of your unrighteousness. Right, when my daughters, when my daughters were younger, they used to all stay in the same room. And some, sometimes when I was you know, putting them down for bed, I'd you know, tuck them all in and I'd, right before I walk up the room, I'd say, hey, I love you. And then I'd have this little like series of questions that they eventually got used to. I'd be like, hey, does daddy love you because you're beautiful? They'd always say, no. One of them would always be like, yeah, but you know, you think we are beautiful? I'm like, absolutely right, I do. Does daddy love you because you're smart? No. We go through like five or six things, right? And at the end, I'd say, well, then why does daddy love you? And eventually they learned, they would just say, just because. Just because. Just because we're your daughters. There's, they cease to be beautiful. They cease to be pretty. They cease to be smart. They cease to be good leaders. Or they cease to be good. I would love them just the same. In fact, I may even love them more because my love is not conditioned on any of those qualities. My love is just given to them because what Paul says almost mind-bogglingly is this is what God has done with you. He's adopted you into his family. He didn't choose you because of your righteousness. That means he's not gonna despise you for your lack of it. If he didn't choose you because you were righteous, he's not holding on to you because of your righteousness and because he saved you in grace, he's gonna hold you in grace and he loves you like a son or daughter now so you can be confident what he started, he's gonna finish. If he predestined you and called you, that's the indication he's gonna glorify you. Those are the four pillars of hope in a world that is consumed by pain and corruption and futility. Let me close all this by, by talking individually to three different, at least three different people here. Number one, there are some of you that are in pain. Could I persuade you just to withhold judgment for a little while and don't declare the verdict yet and just believe based on the character of God that God is doing something amazing like you said he would. When you can't see what the hand of God is doing, you can trust what the heart of God is about. That's what the hymn writer was thinking about when he wrote these words, great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There's no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. What I can offer to you is strength for today. That's the spirit in you praying for you. Bright hope for tomorrow. That's the promise you're gonna be like Jesus and the redemption of your body. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. That's to those of you that are in suffering. To those of you, number two, that are walking with somebody going through suffering and pain. Could I encourage you just to take a cue from the spirit of God? Hey, maybe you should not try to explain everything to them. Maybe you are trying to explain the unexplainable. Maybe what you ought to do is what the Spirit of God does. You should just sit with them for a while. Sit with them in their pain and weep with them as they weep and pray along with the Spirit over them. Finally, I want to say something to unbelievers. Those of you that are guests or maybe you're just checking Christianity out or I don't know, maybe you're just really struggling with your faith and you're maybe not even sure why you're here this morning. I've had this conversation before. Sometimes somebody who's not a believer will say, oh, Oh, this must be awesome to live with that kind of comfort, love that kind of assurance. 
These things are only true because Jesus is who he says he is. And they're only true for me because I have given myself to him. I don't mean this to be harsh, but if you have not given yourself to Jesus, none of these promises are true for you. And you should not flirt with Christianity because it's comforting. In fact, let me borrow the words of C.S. Lewis here. Don't come to Jesus because he can comfort you. Don't come to Jesus because he can encourage you. Don't come to Jesus because it's exciting. Come to Jesus because he's true. And you'll find that because he's true, all these other things are true. The question is, is Jesus who he says he is? Is Jesus who he says he is? Because if he is who he says he is, all these promises are true. And if he's not, none of them are true for anybody. So you've got to ask that question. But I will tell you that the hopelessness of our suffering apart from Christ is certainly a wake-up call for you to consider his claims. Because you understand that apart from Christ, this is all hopeless. It's all going to futility. Paul says that in Christ, the worst pain, the cries of pain is like the cries coming from the labor and delivery ward. Yes, painful, intensity of pain, but shrouded in joy. He says, without Christ, those cries of pain are like the ones coming from someone's deathbed. The pain might be the same, but this time it's a cry of despair. With Christ, you know that he's working all the pain for good. Without Christ, you know this is just the beginning of the end. So yes, receive this as an invitation for you to consider if Jesus really is the resurrection and the life, that those who believe in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. That is an invitation for you to consider the one who overcame the grave and overturned sin and death and did it for you if you will receive it. I want you to bow your heads at all of our campuses. I address three groups. Group number one, you're in pain. Could you just rest in the faithfulness of God right now? Let the Spirit pray over you. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. Say the words of that to him from your own heart. If you're in group number two, you're walking through somebody with suffering, maybe just join right now the Spirit in praying for them. Group number three, if you're an unbeliever, hey, these blessings can be yours, but only if Jesus is who he says he is and only if you're willing to surrender to him. If you wanna do that, that would sound something like this. Lord Jesus, I know, I know that I'm a sinner. And I believe, I believe that you came to earth and died for me. I receive you right now as Lord and Savior. I receive you as Lord and Savior. If you just prayed that prayer, my only request is that you tell somebody before you leave here, tell the person that invited you or one of our pastoral team that'll be down front, prayer counselors after the service, just tell somebody, Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to the faithfulness of our God and the redemption that he is working through the finished work of Jesus. Thank you, God, for these promises and these truths in Jesus' name.